Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports, media, entertainment, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, back again with my co-host, also known as Dr. Oz, if you're watching on TV, which you're not, Tom Richardson. Tom, welcome back. Hi, Joe. How are you? Cool. What's, so, going, on with, what's going on with your lockdown in Jersey? Everything all right? Yeah. So, so anyone who's listening, this is um, just before Memorial Day 2020. Uh, we are still in various stages of lockdown. Um, most things have been canceled. Tom Richardson has just completed uh, an online spring class, which I'm sure was kind of interesting for the first no, time. One, one okay. No, and, no uh, and, you know, and obviously there are all kinds of crisis and um, issues that have come up. You know, what will happen with business going forward? How do politics factor into it? What are the teams going to be doing? Even if sports have now, now at this point, have started to come back, but the, the U.S. team sports are now going to start moving in that direction, hopefully, by the time you're listening to this. Uh, you may be watching a little bit of uh, NBA or WNBA or, or baseball, um, or maybe even the NFL. So we're going to talk a little bit about crisis and storytelling with brands big and small and some, some names unique and funny and lots of different stories with our guest, uh, Kevin Sullivan. Sully is the, the self-proclaimed uh, head of Kevin Sullivan Communications. Uh, and thanks for joining us on The Cusp Show. Thanks for having me, Joe and Tom, and uh, longtime listener of the pod. It's a real thrill to uh, be on today. Thank you. Good to have so you. Sully's, um, for the, those who don't know, Sully's got a pretty unique background that has crossed sports, big business, small business, the leagues, um, golf, um, entertainment, and politics. So why don't you kind of walk us through uh, kind of how you got to where you are, Sully, and, and how that path kind of melded together. My, my story is one of benefiting from relationship building, Joe. It's, it's, we never uh, talk about that, so that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the most important thing, you know, for the, for, the, for the students around Columbia, for any young people, that's sort of the first point I want to make is, is the relationships are what's best about being in sports and what makes the world go around. Uh, and not just because you, may, you might make a buck someday off of a relationship, but because it's what really does enrich our lives and it's the, the fun part. But you know, I, I grew up in Chicago, went to Purdue, worked in the sports information office uh, starting at the age of 19. I walked in there as a student volunteer and knew almost immediately it was what I wanted to do. I was a management major. I sort of uh, squeaked my way through a management degree from the Cranard School, which I'm, I'm glad I did. So I, <clears throat> I never took a PR class in college, uh, but just followed this. Uh, th this was my way to be involved in, in sports. Uh, my dreams of being the second baseman of the White Sox had long since ended due to a lack of ability. And, and, but this was my way to participate, to be a part of this, 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 this cool, you know, place in the world. Uh, so, you know, from there, I, 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 uh, I learned an enormous amount, great lessons, you know, there, Tom Shoup and Paul. Who's Tanner. the head of the sports information office there, Sully? Yeah, it was Tom, Tom Shoup was the, was the head SID and Paul Jensen, uh, was the number two. And then Karen Heisler, Karen Croak Heisler was the grad assistant. Uh, and she went on to great things. And, and, you know, so did Jensen, who was with the Arizona Cardinals for a long time. And, and it was an incredible, we had a lot of great, the, a lot of the students there went on to great things. It was just an amazing time to be there. I listened, I asked questions, worked hard, uh, just threw myself into it. And it was a blast. And I learned a ton uh, and and uh, and then from there I ended up 
sort of hustling my way into a job with the expansion Dallas Mavericks in the summer before the, the first season. And, uh, you know, that was, this is the, May 1st was the 40th anniversary of the founding of the team. And so I've, I've, I've been, I've, I've done a couple interviews about that first season. And the thing I remember, I remember a lot of things, but my first day on the job, I was with Dave Burchett, who went on to a long career as a broadcast producer and director. Uh, Greg Jamison, who went on to be the president of the uh, Indianapolis, Indiana Pacers and San Jose Sharks and a great career. And we worked until 11 p.m. on my first day on the job. And I was, you were going to have to bodily remove me from this job because I, I was in. You know, I had my shot in sports. And as, as you can imagine, you know, uh, you know, being a part of, of a ground floor deal like that, there were only 15 employees in the front office, which is wow. stunning today. You know, NBA teams have that in player development alone today or in analytics or whatever. Uh, Norm Sanju was the founding GM and the team president, and he took a chance on me as a 21-year-old. And here's another lesson for people looking for a job in sports. I had been on the stack crew as a student at Purdue, and I was a runner and, uh, you know, did all those things. And Dave Burchett seemed nervous about the stack crew in my interview, and he said, could you, could you, take, could you be in charge of the stack crew? I said, got it, done, over. What, what else do you want to know? And I, I figured out that was his pain point. So when you're going on a job interview, figure out what solution you can offer for the person who's going to make the hiring decision. And, and that, that worked out. Paul Phipps was the business manager then, was also in that interview. He went on to become an NBA GM. You know, so a lot of, I was just really fortunate to be surrounded at age 21 by this incredible group of talented and good people. So that so I had a great run there, 18 years. And, and so Before you leave the Mavericks, first, so that was like Tommy Lagarde and Jim Spinarkle. Those Absolutely. Are yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I'm still in touch with both of those guys. Uh, and yeah, the, 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 then the next year was Mark Aguirre and Rolando Blackman and Jay Vincent. And then soon was Derek Harper. And, you know, we had a great run there for, for a while. Uh, in the 80s, could not quite deliver the knockout punch to the Lakers with Kareem, Magic, Worthy, and so on. But Hey, Joe, uh, I, I, I'm listening to you with these references and these conversations about basketball history. You're like the Doris Kearns Goodwin of, like, random basketball information. She has <laughs> like, every history. week you come up with old basketball stuff. It's incredible. The last Sully, dance. The legacy of the last dance. Yeah. So you guys know each other, I know. Uh, is, is that a correct assessment of Joe's – how Joan's brain – brain work because he, he seems to have a, a, like in a, a never-ending knowledge of old basketball names. Yeah yeah and I wouldn't limit it to just basketball either but Joe's Joe is, is is sharp on the trivia stuff across the spectrum I would say. Okay. Okay. See that's also part of relationship building and kind of the fun stuff and ways you can make connections with people that maybe you don't you don't you don't know as well or you're just getting to know so so uh but you know, just an incredible run there with the with with the Mavericks, and you know, over the years, I took on more responsibility, of course, and and had more experiences. And you know, we had a lot of good years, and we had some epically bad years. I remember one year we were, in fact, I think we were two and thirty nine at the halfway point, two years in a row. And I remember Randy Whitman, uh, who at that time was an assistant coach uh, in the in the uh, uh, in the locker room one day after practice, looking at the newspaper and saying, it looks like a typo. Uh, but I also think in those lean years, you know, we did 
the team did some of our best work because you had to be more creative and hustle a little bit more and come up with a different angle. And, and Tony Fay, who was my assistant there for many years, uh, is one of the most creative people that I've ever been around and a really, really smart guy now running his own uh, firm in Dallas. And Tony came up with a lot of ideas that got us, you know, they used to say, on, we had more stories on NBA inside stuff uh, than any non-playoff team ever. And it was because of you know, a lot of Tony's crazy ideas that were actually very good uh, TV. So Sully, what, what do you think when you first heard that newly minted billionaire Mark Cuban was buying the franchise? You know, the, uh, uh, he, you know, obviously I knew who he was from AudioNet and Broadcast.com, and I just thought this is going to be a whole new era. Now, I was already on my way out at that point. I had interviewed at NBC. Uh, they had reached out to me in December of, of uh, 99, and, uh, and I left for NBC in February of 2000. Mark bought the team in January of 2000. Uh, I had been working as a loaned executive at the Dallas 2012 uh, Olympic Bid uh, Committee, which was another uh, sort of transformational experience in its own way. Uh, but, but Mark, you know, immediately came in, very player-centric, changed the culture immediately. If you think about it, you know, the building was taken care of. He admitted he could not have gotten the building done. Ross Perot Jr. had the business and political skills to get that done. Don Nelson was there, Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki, Michael Finley. There were a lot of pieces in place, but Mark took it to another level, you know, very quickly. Uh, so, yeah, he's been, he's been a, 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 you know, breath of fresh air and obviously a, a stalwart owner now for 20 years. No. So then did you have to move up to New York for that NBC job? Yeah, I moved to New York, which was no. uh, obviously a, a huge deal. And in fact, it's funny, another sort of lesson learned along the way for me is, is uh, when you get these life-changing opportunities, uh, I didn't tell, I didn't talk about it with a hundred people. You know, I I really relied on that small circle of people that I knew for sure only had my best interests at heart, and that starts with my my wife Joe. And I remember thinking, you know, we had it's funny thing about it is we had just bought a house and remodeled it. We had every we sunk every penny we had into this house. And 11 weeks later, there was a for sale sign in the front yard. And I remember my first objection to the NBC uh, outreach. And by the way, I think five or six people had turned the job down before they, before they came to me, uh, which didn't bother me. I just thought, here's my opportunity. I don't care where it, where it came. Uh, but I said to her, the timing is all wrong, and it's New York, and it's a hassle. And she said to me, you can do this, and this would be, this sounds like a grown-up job. This would be like going to grad school for you, I remember her telling me. And once I went and once I met with uh, Dick Eversall and, and, and uh, uh, Ken Shanzer and John Miller, which actually took place in Ponte Vedra uh, Beach at the PGA Tour annual meetings, that was where my interview was at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, once I got there, I, was, I really was in hot pursuit and wanted to, wanted to get it. Uh, and another good friend of... of uh, of, of Joe's, Kevin Monahan was very interest, very instrumental in me getting that opportunity along with Brian McIntyre. Uh, Brian McIntyre, you know, longtime NBA communications chief, one of the elite relationship people uh, of all time was also instrumental in, in helping me. And, you know, and because of the NBA, we had, I, I knew of the NBC people, but again, in those, in those years, it's not like the Mavericks were on NBC every Sunday. So, uh, so I had a lot, of, a lot of help in, 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 in making that decision and in getting there. So be before we move on to NBC, a couple points of note. Uh, Sully, I forgot to mention this, but Tom and Kevin Monahan are actually very good friends. So, mm -hmm. um, and 
we actually. And he's been a guest on the show, Joe. He's been a guest on the show. I remember. Uh, And um, a similar, a lot of similar career paths Sully and I have had, including to the point where when I was uh, working in the athletic department at Fordham is when I was offered the Knicks, uh, the Sixers PR job. And we had just bought a house and just gotten married. And my wife too came up and said, no, you can do this. We can move to Philadelphia. And we actually did it. So, you know, I think the lesson coming out of that is, you know, think about thinking about the long term and figuring out solutions versus problems. And, and uh, the guys sit here and figure out the problems and the women come along and or at least the other halves come along and figure out the solutions, which has been pretty good. So, um, so you get to NBC Sully and kind of walk people through where, where NBC was in terms of sports at that point, it's obviously evolved, but one of the constants obviously has been the Olympics through the whole thing. Yeah. The Olympics was obviously the, the, the biggest thing. Uh, I was hired in February of 2000, the Sydney games were, were the following September, which was unusual for a, for a summer games, but the following fall in, in Sydney, so that was a big thing. Uh, you know, NBC did not have the NFL at that point and was in its last season, as it would turn out, of Major League Baseball. So this was a little bit of the lean years where we had Notre Dame football, had the Triple Crown, began the relationship with NASCAR, which was exciting. Uh, I loved learning all the new stuff. This is another thing I tell, tell young people, be curious. I embraced the opportunity to dive into NASCAR, learn what it was all about. Same with, uh, with the Triple Crown which ended up both being great experiences. Uh, you know, we had, we had a number of other, uh, of other uh, properties. We got into, you know, the arena football deal, which was, which was a, you know, a, a, a joint venture, you know, again, trying to come up with some new things. Uh, and, and, uh, and then, of course, the XFL, which was a, a legendary year in my life that I'll never forget, and, and great in a lot of ways, uh, a big swing. Uh, and, and, you know, so it just, but the big thing, the big takeaway from NBC was, again, really, really talented people. I mean, I could talk about what I learned from Eversol and Shanzer for, for an hour, just that. And, and the number one thing with Dick was storytelling. And as a, as a communications and PR practitioner, he taught me to look at everything through the lens of a producer. And I'll give you one example. We had in, uh, I forget if this was, you know, 2001 or two or what year it was, but uh, we were, it was, I think it was then called the Genuity Classic. It was the event, the PGA Tour stop at Durrell. And Tiger Woods did not normally play in that event, but this year he was because he was coming off of, of, of uh, arthroscopic knee surgery and he, wanted, he needed to play. So, so uh, I write the press release. I, by the time I got to NBC, of course, I had written, you know, however, hundreds, many press releases, and I thought I had this down pretty good. And the press release that I wrote for the Genuity was very much the, you know, NBC's coverage of the, you know, Genuity classic or whatever it was called begins at, you know, one o'clock on Saturday with continuing final round coverage on Sunday at three o'clock with a field headlined by Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia, whatever. Well, Eversol looked at it and he said, you know, we have a lot of golf. Had the Ryder Cup in addition to PGA Tour, uh, we have a lot of golf, but we don't have a lot of Tiger Woods. And whenever Tiger Woods is on our air, the first two words of the press release need to be Tiger Woods. You got to get to the good stuff. Get to it right away. And don't bury the lead. <laughs> yeah, you know, get to, tell a story. And so Tiger Woods coming off knees, you know, you know, coming off this adversity of a knee injury, taking on the blue monster, 
Even if you knew nothing about golf or derail, the blue monster sounded cool and like a worthy adversary for this guy trying to overcome our hero, trying to overcome this obstacle. Uh, and then, by the way, you mentioned Sergio, who at that time was red hot and was in the field at Mickelson or whoever else. And, and I just, it was like a, it was like, you know, the, this, the secret being unleashed and, and that fueled everything that we, that we did there. And I, I took that to the White House and, you know, we called it the Tiger Woods rule and somebody would write a fact sheet. Interestingly, at the White House, you do more fact sheets than press releases. Usually the president speaks and that's kind of the press release. And we applied the Tiger Woods rule from Dick to, to, uh, to the fact sheets at the White House. And, and, you know, and not only Dick and Shanzer and guys like Monaghan and Gary Quinn and John Miller, and, and, but the, the exposure to NBC News and to NBC West Coast, the entertainment division, to all these really, really smart people who were so passionate. I, the, when I got there, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a sports guy. And I really tried to embrace the opportunities that were available to me working in 30 Rock and being a part of this incredible, incredible company. And by the way, my colleagues in the communications department, you know, Cameron Blanchard, Mike McCarley, uh, Kathy Connors, uh, you know, we had, a, we had an incredible team, everybody who brought a lot of energy and ideas. Of course, McCarley has been the president of Golf Channel for a long time. Cameron's gone on to Big Post now, heading up communications for Charter Communications. And, you know, so I've, I've always been fortunate to be surrounded by really talented uh, people who, who are fun to work with and, and give it all they have. So Sully, you're at NBC, obviously you have this great run and you talked about relationships before. Tell everybody about the transition into education and how that came about and the George Bush story, which we want to hear about the back of the car, uh, which yeah, is a great story. So this is, this is a lightning bolt, Joe, that it's kind of a, you know, just a saga that, I, that I'm not still, I'm still not sure how it happened, but I mentioned a minute ago that the, the Dallas 2012 experience was, was transformational for me. And I did it for a year. What happened, Ross Perot Jr. owned the Mavericks, and he was also leading this effort for Dallas to mount a bid for the 2012 Olympics. Now, you may recall, those games actually ended up in London, not Dallas. But it was a great thing to be a part of. And one of the best things about it was that, that the day-to-day -day leader of that, of that enterprise was a guy named Tom Luce. Tom uh, had been the Perot family attorney going way back with Ross Sr. He had run for governor of Texas in 1990. Really just this uh, incredibly well-respected local figure in Dallas and a disciplined, efficient, business leader, smart guy. And we, he loved basketball. And so he was, because of the Ross Perot Jr. ownership, which was, which was a, the four years in between the original owner, Donald Carter and Mark Cuban, were the Ross Perot Jr. years. And that was the primarily remembered for the construction of American Airlines Center. So, so, so in any case, I got to know Tom and, and really he became a mentor of, of, of mine. And uh, Tom's avocation was education, public education reform. So one day in January of 2005, uh, I'm riding the Metro North train from Westchester to go, go into the city uh, to, I'm in the corporate job now. I have, after the Athens Olympics, I hopped the fence to the corporate side. So I'm now an SVP in CorpCom for NBC Universal. another phenomenal opportunity working with Bob Wright and Randy Falco and two more guys I learned a lot from. Uh, but so anyway, so January of 05, I get a, an email on my BlackBerry on the train one morning from Tom Luce. 
and he says, would you be interested in a senior communications position with the administration in Washington? And I figured, I kind of had a sense of what he was talking about because of his political background and his, his work in education reform. But I wrote back to him and I said, you mean the wizards? <laughs> because, you know, and I, you know, so, so he, he, make a long story short, he, he tells me, uh, you're going to hear from a woman named Margaret Spellings, who I had never heard of. And you ought to listen to her. She's very close with the president and she's about to be named the secretary of education. And so, so, you know, we, we eventually have a call and, and all I know with Tom and all I know is there are no adjectives in the English language to describe how little interest I have in going from 30 rock to what was then known as federal building number six. They're the opposite extremes of the glamor spectrum in terms of, of workplaces. And, and I just thought this is a temporary job. I got this great job. They've just six months ago given me this incredible opportunity on the corporate side at NBC Universal. Uh, you know, I remember my wife and I had gone to the premiere, which was part of the Tribeca Film Festival of the movie The Interpreter. Nicole Kidman and Sean uh, Penn are sitting in front of us. Robert De Niro is speaking. I nudged my wife and I said, stick with me, baby. This is how it's going to be from now on. Like now I'm some big guy <laughs> with NBC Universal. And again, timing in life isn't always, doesn't always align. So, so eventually, you know, so Margaret calls and my opening salvo to her is, uh, I didn't know what to call her while she was on hold. I Googled her. I mean, this is really, really bad example stuff for your audience. But I said, Madam Secretary, uh, I, I'm really honored that you called, but I got to tell you, you got the wrong guy. I don't know anything about this education policy stuff, the government, politics. Uh, I'm in a great situation here. I'll help you any way I can, but, but I, you got the wrong guy. And she said, I don't need a policy expert. I need a communications expert. Will you at least meet me for lunch? So I'm still, I'm kind of flattered and honored that she would call and all this. Never spoke to a member of the president's cabinet before. So I say, sure. So I figure, you know, 50-50 shot this lunch ever happened. She's busy. She got sworn in a couple of days ago. 20 minutes later or whatever, I get a phone call from her assistant. This is on a Wednesday. Can you be here Saturday? So I, I go to New York and then I go to Washington and that morning, I actually say to myself out loud, what a waste of time this is going to be. <laughs> I could have stayed in bed. It was cold. If, you know, I think it was the first Saturday in February in 2000 and, 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 and uh, 2005. So I get to, I meet her and, um, and I, I want to give it my best, but I, I want to, somebody later described it as a good bank job. You get in, you get out, nobody gets hurt. I wanted to be helpful to her, but I did not want to this to gain any traction. So, so uh, she sits down, and before we even order at the Majestic uh, Diner in Old Town Alexandria, she looks at me over the top of her menu, and she says, I don't know what you'll do after NBC, but this will be the most important thing you've done so far. I'm putting a team together. It's going to be great. I'm only going to get good people. The work is really important. We don't have a lot of time. You're going to love the president. going to be great for your family. And I promise you will always be in the room. I won't make a move without you. Uh, what do you say? And I was just completely blown away. I was I'll aware. I love the pancakes. Yeah, I, you know, I'll have the grilled chicken, uh, please. Uh, you know, the, um, I was aware of two things, I think, just sort of on a visceral level that, number one, I was being asked to serve. And number two, they weren't going to ask twice. Because... You know, I, I was really from, from outer space. This, normally people get these jobs who worked on a campaign 
but you know, second term, they look for some private sector people. And, uh, and I just, I love the gleam in her eye and the sense of purpose. And on some level, I felt it would be important and it was gonna be different and it might be good for our family. And once again, you know, my wife, Jo, was very much in favor of it, thought it'd be a great adventure for the family. And so what if it's temporary? You'll get another job. You know, what are you worried about? You know, kind of the notion of bet on yourself. And, and so, so uh, I slow played it. I, what am I going to say to these NBC guys these, who took a chance on me? And ultimately, you know, I, uh, I, I took, took, the, took the leap. I, I, you know, I had the background check. I remember meeting with an FBI agent near the skating rink at, at 30 Rock. It was very, you know, you know clandestine. It was pretty funny. But uh, so I get to education and um, I mean, completely different world. You have uh, career employees dominate. There's a handful of political appointees like me. You know, most of them didn't either didn't vote for President Bush or didn't like No Child Left Behind. So there was a weird thing where you had to identify on the team who, who could be helpful and maybe who wasn't. So as a management and leadership exercise, it was completely different and, and challenging and exciting and, and all that. But that was another great experience, but never in a million years that I imagined it would end up after 13 months with me going to the White House as communications director. Wow. So tell, tell, tell the Bush story in the car. That's the, that's the one well, that I- I'll tell you the, uh, the, if I may, Joe, the, the precursor to the limo story is the story of, of, of my job interview in July of 06 with President Bush. And they had told me I had nine interviews leading up to this. And this is the culmination. So I have a sense that I'm either the, the candidate or I'm one of the two finalists or whatever. I really wasn't sure. But I knew they wouldn't have me meeting with him if it wasn't serious. So they told me the interview is going to be personal in nature. It's you know, kind of like a chemistry check. You know, President Bush is a feel guy. So... So just don't worry about, you know, how you're going to talk about immigration reform communications or the economy, which was booming at the time, or the first anniversary of Katrina or the fifth anniversary of 9-11, which were kind of the things that I had been grilled about during the interview process. So I, I kept asking myself, how can I use my sports background as a bridge builder with him without coming across like some guy who's in a bunch of fantasy leagues and has nothing else to offer? So I, you know, I thought and thought and thought, and I came up with a potential plan. And as it turned out, he teed it up for me. And what happened was I, I, I go into the Oval Office and I'm nervous, I've never been in there. I know this is a crossroads moment in my life. How, how I perform in the next 15 minutes, you know, this is a big moment, but I just, I'm gonna embrace it, have some fun with it. I walk in and I said, sir, it's an honor to be here, which I had practiced. I didn't know what to say to him. I had practice. Sir, your honor. Your honor. <laughs> he said, yeah, it is. Come on in. Take a look around. Oval office. Isn't this cool? You know, democracy, you know. And, uh, and he immediately put me at ease, which is what he does to people. Sometimes, you know, to the delight of the late night comedians. He didn't care about that. He, he always put people at ease who he sensed might be nervous. Well, his first question to me was, I know you were at Education with Margaret. I know you worked at NBC. I know about the Mavericks, but where are you from? And this was, and I looked at him and I said, Chicago, sir, White Sox, not Cubs. And he had a big smile on his face and kind of threw his head back. And of course, this was strategic in that 
Jerry Reinsdorf was one of the key players in getting him brought into baseball with the Texas Rangers in the late 80s. Uh, he's an American League guy, loves baseball. And, and he looked at Dan Bartlett, who, who was the, the counselor to the president and was the other person in the Oval Office, and said, oh, we got a baseball fan, huh? Which was step number two. And I said, sir, until this moment, I think the greatest day of my life, except for having your kids and all that kind of stuff, was being at game two of the 05 World Series when Pedsednik hit the walk-off homer. And it was off. I mean, we talked, you know, we started with baseball. And, 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 and that was the theme throughout my time with him was using sports as an icebreaker or as a tension breaker or, or whatever. And, and, and that leads to the story you're referring, uh, Joe, which was in the fall of 2006, October, we were in Oakland, Michigan, President Bush was uh, campaigning in vain mostly for uh, candidates for midterm elections in the fall of 06. Iraq is unpopular. A lot of candidates don't want to be seen with them. Th things are, are a mess for him at this, at this moment. But he's hustling around the country, stumping for, at rallies for all of these, these, these candidates. It was hard. That's hard work. And a lot of it didn't pay off. And he was feeling that, that burden. So, you know, I had heard the speech many, many, many times. And you know, just like the team bus doesn't wait for the, the PR person, the motorcade doesn't work, wait for the comms director. So at a certain point in the speech, you instinctively head for the motorcade. So I get in the, in the senior staff, the support van, and I'm on my Blackberry. A Secret Service agent sticks his head in the window and says, you got an upgrade which means you're being invited to, to ride in the limo or stagecoach as the Secret Service called it. And, uh, and I had been in the limo once, or once before, I think, but what was unusual about this was we had about a 25 minute ride to the airport. And normally, you know, he'd have a congressman or whatever, somebody, a local dignitary or whatever, go with him on the ride or a donor or whatever. And uh, so this was surprising that I would be asked to go on a long ride. And I didn't know if he was mad about something. If there were a couple things that happened that day. I didn't know if he wanted to talk about that, if there was an issue, if I'm in trouble. So you don't get in the limo until the president gets in. So I'm waiting outside the limo and the door bursts open on the side of the, of the, of the hall. And President Bush comes flying out of there. He's got Carl Rove behind him. President gets in, I get in, Rove gets in. President Bush is to my right. Rove is sitting right across from me. Somebody on the rope line had given Carl Rove a Tigers cap. The Tigers are playing the Cardinals in the World Series on this day that we're there in the fall of 06. So Rove is wearing that Tigers cap uh, as, as they come around the car. President Bush says to me, Sully, get in. We need some humor. And I took a deep breath and I thought to myself, this is the most pressure that I have ever felt in my professional life, in my life period. The leader of the free world needs his burden lifted a little bit today, needs his load lightened, and he's counting on me to do it. I sit down, I'm looking at Rove, I'm looking at the president. It's not like I can say, did you hear the one about the priest and the rabbi who walked into a bar? You know, I'm thinking, what do I do here to... to, to lighten the mood a little bit. I'm looking at Rove with the tiger's cap and I thought Pudge Rodriguez. And I said to President Bush, what was the first year you had the Rangers? 
And he says, 1989. And I said, who was the catcher on that ball club? And I'm thinking, what? and I may have said, was it Rodriguez yet? Because I lived in Dallas then. And I remember when he came up at age 19, and I'm trying to do the math with the years. And President Bush says, no, no. And he begins to name the catchers on that team. Uh, you know, Chad Kruder, uh, Jim Sundberg was still there. And he gets a big smile on his face. And he says, and we had Gino Petrali. And then he begins to, to recite from memory the starting lineup. Third, second, first, short, outfield, starting road. By the time he got to the middle infield, I loosened my tie and I sat back. You know, my work was done. I had taken his mind off just for 20 minutes on the way to the airport. We talked about that Rangers team and then the next year's team and the ball bouncing off of Canseco's head you know, for a home run and all the things that, that happened. And, and uh, it continued once we got to Air Force One. And, and so it was really, it, it's another, so many stories about the power of sports uh, to inspire. Well, sometimes it's just to crack somebody up or to take their mind off their troubles. And, and that was, uh, the, and, and, and that was you know, one of the most uh, memorable days of my time there for a, for a, for a funny reason. So, so Sully, when you talk about, um that story. And one of the reasons why I wanted you to bring it up are two elements. One is humanity and the other is empathy. And you were able to deliver both. And that kind of segues into your post real public career with all the places that you've worked and the people that you're working with now, which hopefully you can mention some of them, uh, and how the storytelling and the crisis and everything else has evolved into a business for you uh, and some of the lessons learned from all those things to what you do now. I never aspired to work for myself, but I had, I was, I had this sort of this, you know, you said I earlier, I had a unique combination, you know, to be able to take sports, corporate, political, put it in one package and offer it in, in a way that hopefully is helpful to people. So took a leap. Uh, you know, once, once, you know, I jumped off the cliff a little bit going from Dallas to New York and in a big way going from New York to DC to a temporary job, uh, so I, you know, it's easy to do it after you've done it once or twice. So I, I just decided to take a run at it. And, and it's been a blast. And, and you know, in terms of how, the, how it's evolved, I took those storytelling lessons from NBC. And, 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 and as you said, Joe, humanity and empathy. You know, Friday night, my wife and I watched the Gary Marshall special uh, that aired recently on ABC. And one of the, th I picked up sort of a new storytelling trick of, uh, uh, I still have an association with the with the Bush Presidential Center in Dallas, and one of the women who works there, Katie Coburn, forwarded this to me and said, "You're going to like the storytelling tip here." And Gary Marshall talked about uh, finding complexity in life, addressing the complexity, adding humanity, maybe with in compassion, maybe with some humor. The end. You know that was the Gary Marshall formula. I picked up you know the, some of the Pixar stuff along the way. Uh, you know, which to them is set up, build, payoff as they apply it to business. But, the, but, but, you know, even more than storytelling, I would say day in and day out, I deal with messaging. And I use an example from, from, from the coronavirus pandemic response with the NHL. And, and I wasn't directly involved with this. So I, I take no credit, even though the NHL has been a wonderful client for, for 10 years, uh, more than almost 11 years. Uh, and, you know, the NBA canceled uh, on March 11th, and they said they were suspending their season. And on the morning of March 12th, the NHL said they were pausing the season. And I noted that, and I thought, why did they choose pause versus
versus sus suspend. And if you follow Gary Bettman over the last two months, while always, uh, always and repeatedly offering the caveat that we're not doing anything that without the green light from the public health experts and we're following CDC guidance and all that, health, well-being of the players and all involved come first. But he always has struck a little bit of a hopeful tone. And I guess that's why they use pause. They, their content, which has been extraordinary that they've done, uh, especially for a league whose players are not naturally inclined to be going crazy on social media because of the we nature that you talked about, I, I noticed with, with Raleigh recently on, on the Cusp show. Uh, they did, they've done an extraordinary job with content, and they called it the pause binge. So they defined it, and then they kept it going, extended it, and then you see the media has picked up on it and across the board refers to it as during the pause. So, so that's a recent example, uh, again, that I take no credit for or anything that I give the, NA, the NHL a lot of credit for. Uh, I think this notion of having the right message, getting it right the first time, it's never too late to hit the reset button. Tone being really important, obviously, with a national emergency with 36 million people on unemployment and uh, 90,000 people or thereabouts, as we speak, uh, have, having died. You know, tone, tone matters and you know, getting that right. Uh, I think is something that I focused on a lot with our clients uh, the last few months. Hey, Sully, here's a question on that point about messaging. You obviously um, advanced your career as the era of social media began. So Facebook 2004, Twitter 2006, et cetera. Did things get harder or easier when power players, including politicians and leaders of teams such as Mark Cuban, could go, quote, directly to the fans and bypass a corp comms person or a corp comms team or strategy. And we're obviously seeing that uh, to, to the NB right now on the current uh, administration, and, and that's their option. But is that, is, how did you process that in your different roles? Well, first of all, I, I'm an all of the above guy. And I think you can still get uh, guidance, advice, help from your expert, trusted advisor, communications person, but it enables you to go direct. And I'll I give Mark Cuban an enormous amount of credit. The NBA suspends on March 11th, and that night he is talking directly mm -hmm. to the world about taking care of arena workers. So he went first on that. And being first, you've got to be right. But, you know, but, but something like that, he, he got there first. And it was very strategic and smart. He couldn't have done that in 2004 as effectively. So I, so I give Mark a lot of credit there. Now, you know, one of the things that I'm really passionate about when I speak to, to young people uh, and, 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 and communications people, but also executives uh, across the board is, you know, don't think of your comms person or if you're a comms professional, don't think of yourself as defined by press releases and credentials and game notes and seating charts and, 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 and the media guide and, and digital content even. Think of yourself as an expert, just like the CFO is viewed as an expert and the general counsel is viewed as an expert and the CMO. You know, nothing drives me more nuts, especially in this day and age with, as you say, Tom, speed, and timing and strategy are so important. Nothing drives me as nuts is when the chief communications person reports to HR or marketing because mm -hmm. we are our own expert 
area with our own uh, value to add that shouldn't have to be a bank shot through somebody else. It sends a terrible message when the CFO and the general counsel is on the same floor as the CEO and the comms department is two or three or five floors below. And I mean that figuratively as well as literally. Uh, but in order to earn that seat at the table as communicators, we've got to know how, to, how and when to give advice. Uh, I read somebody said one time, I think of this all the time, it's not enough to be right. You've got to be helpful. Uh, so there's a whole thing we could talk about, about how to become a trusted advisor, how to learn to give advice, but also how to look at yourself as somebody capable of doing that as a communications professional. Right, but is the, the direct consumer effort by some of these leaders a good idea in your opinion or not so good idea? Well, I mean, I guess know, it, ideally it's a good idea once the CEO has spoken to the comms uh, chief. Right. What do you think if we go forward with this idea or that idea? Let's vet the language. You know, we saw David Geffen doing a, a, uh, a, a social distancing message from his yacht out at sea. I mean, unbelievably. <laughs> I saw that, yeah. Uh, and, and other examples we could, we could get into uh, people who didn't consult with their comms person first. Uh, and I know a lot of times when people make mistakes, I, I always assume they didn't talk to the comms person. You know, I don't blame the, you know, I'm a, I always try to elevate, reinforce support uh, and be a partner to the, the comms teams where we have the opportunity to consult. Uh, but yeah, I think it's both, Tom. I mean, I think you... You, 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 you consult, you come up with a strategy even quickly because time matters in these things and urgency, but think about it before you, before you hit share. So, so let's, let's take a couple of examples if you don't mind. Now, Joe and I have talked about this before. I find this fascinating. Certain leaders in sports are quite active, and I'll use one example that we know well, Dana White. I'm going to say we know well. He's a very high-profile guy. I don't know. I don't think Joe does either. He's got over 5 million followers on Twitter. He's fairly, from what I gather, looking at his tweet, his feed, you know, he can be impulsive and that's his prerogative. Is he being advised by a corp comms person day in and day out about what he's doing on Twitter, for example, as opposed to, let's say, Roger Goodell, who has a Twitter account but doesn't tweet. And as I always tell my class when we talk about social media and, and kind of content approaches, he stopped tweeting actively when the Ray Rice um, situation got really bad a few years ago uh, and then eventually came back but it's all kind of glossy easy stuff it's not the kind of stuff Dana does so what's the story with UFC and Dana you know I don't know if he consults with with anyone or not but I would say and if, you know someone sent me you know and I saw the his response uh, in the press conference the other night where he was lashing out very profanely uh, about a, a reporter, and I, I can only I can only guess that he just figures he you know uh, this is part of his brand, and it's sort of how he's defined the brand, and so he's going to stick with it. And it's sort of like on some level, I guess, has you know has worked for him certainly uh, in the past, so he's going to stick with it. You know, some of that is you know you know uh, in fact, uh, Doug Miller, the the, the football comms guy at the Saints, who's a uh, a, a good buddy and a longtime client of ours uh, for media training, you know, he sent that to me and we texted back and forth, you know, can you imagine if the Saints GM Mickey Loomis or head coach Sean Payton would do that in a press conference setting, uh, lashing out with those F-bombs at a reporter? I mean, 
there'd be fines. Yeah, but Dano isn't beholden to, a, I guess, to a league or to ownership or to a fan base, I, I guess, you know. So it's the choice he's make, he, he makes that he believes works for him, and, and I would just leave it at, at that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, it, like that authenticity becomes the most important thing. If that's part of your brand, as you said, you kind of have to be that way. And we're witnessing that in Washington, obviously, where there's stuff being said that it's highly doubtful, at least to me, that it's being vetted by communications people. Right. You know, here's the thing the, the, with authenticity. And, and, you know, Joe referenced this earlier. In media training, like I'm a big believer in you got to internalize the messages and make them your own. And the best way to do that is with storytelling. And if it's not a storytelling example, if it's not a story, it can be a anecdote, a for example, but bring it to life with your own experience. And, uh, you know, and, and that's what makes it interesting for the listener. And also it gives you more than one way to make your point. Whereas if all you have is a couple of talking points, once you've used those two talking points, you're, you're, first of all, you're not as genuine and authentic and, not, and you're out of stuff to say, so you're going to repeat. So this is where the storytelling is so important. And, this, and the notion of preparing uh, you know, for an interview and not just relying on your subject matter expertise or your, or your charisma or natural charm and you know, ah, I'm going to wing it. And I, you know, I've seen a lot of people over the years who said, I got this, who, who, who don't have it, you know, who aren't really ready. But they get tired, they're impatient, they're successful type A, high achieving people, and they're used to being in command and they, you know, they got it, they can, they can pull this off. But it's much better to go into an interview with, I'm, I'm gonna make this point, that point, and I'm gonna tell this story. So it's, you know, message one, message two, for example. And you always have to be responsive. You're adding your talking points, either in front of or on the back of actual answers to people's questions. Sully, in the last couple of minutes that we have you, there's always two questions we always ask our guests. How do you stay constant or up to date with everything that's going on? And then now we're in a really unique situation, not just with young people going into the marketplace, but people changing jobs. Uh, what advice do you give people? Uh, and then obviously let us know where everybody can find you. Yeah, uh, in terms of what advice for people wanting to get into the business, whether it's mid-career or, or right out of school, for the run out of school people, it's internships, 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 uh, you know, volunteer, do whatever you have to. But it gets back to, the, to, to two things, the relationships. People will help you connect with people. It's easier to connect with people than ever before. Uh, value those relationships. Don't let, them, don't, don't let people only hear from you when you need something or when you're asking for something. Mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, I love technology and learning about technology. And technology is the great facilitator and in many ways, the great equalizer and all those things. But the ideas are still what matter most. And so, so uh, think about ideas that you have and share them. Write. Don't, don't, you know, uh, don't just, don't forget to pick up the phone and call people. Uh, also, by the way, connected to that relationship point as opposed to just doing it all through digital means. Uh, but don't forget the ideas are still what matters in the, in the, in the storytelling. Uh, and, and also, I, I heard uh, Sarah Melton, uh, who was a Mavericks VP of comms after, long after me, but was there longer than me, 20, 21 years. She said recently, she tells young people to uh, maintain humility and be a hard worker. And I think, I think that, is, that is huge, huge advice. And then one last piece of advice I was given at the Department of Education, by the way, 
by a guy named Ted McPherson. And this was before I actually started it. And he asked me what questions I had for him. And I, I, and I, I said, well, what would you want to know if you were me coming into this whole new world? And he said, hey, you can't do everything. So take a look around, see where you can add value and be bold. And I thought, you know, this is the greatest advice I've ever been given. Take a look around, see where you can add value and be bold. Uh, so I, that's what I would leave people with, with today. And then in terms of where to find me on Twitter, at Sully uh, with an IE on the end, K-S-U-L-L-I-E. And uh, I'm on all the other uh, platforms too. Uh, hit me on LinkedIn and uh, ksullivancoms.com. And uh, if you have, if anybody wants to connect, uh, I'm open for business because a lot of people have helped me along the way. Uh, and and uh, I owe it to them, you know, to, uh, to keep it rolling. So thanks so much, guys, for, uh, for, for having me on today. And, uh, and everybody stay safe out there. That was terrific. Thanks, Sully. Final thoughts, Tom? Anything else? If you want to connect, I'm open for business. One of my favorite lines of recent memory of our, of our podcast. That's a good one, Sully. Uh, thank you. Maybe, maybe that should be, Joe, maybe that should be the tagline of our show. <laughs> I didn't mean it like for business. I meant, you know. No, I know, but it's a, it's a good sentiment. I mean, it's, you know, something Joe and I talk about all the time. Yeah, so. The only thing I'm kicking myself, I did a shitty job telling the limo story. It could have been, <laughs> it could have been half as long and more direct, and I apologize. It, well, per our pre-call conversation, maybe we'll do uh, V2 of the podcast where you can embellish all these maybe even better than they were the first time. Yeah, I, I, so I, I, I'd like another shot at that, but that'll be for another time. So sorry about that. That's all right. No, that, those are great stories. By the way, what a really interesting career path. So congratulations on your successes and, um, and your experiences. It really, um, really was quite amazing. So. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I, I, I just been, I've been in the right place at the right time and have, and have had a lot of people looking out for me who took a shot at me, you know, and I think that's, that's uh, about as good a thing as you can hope for. And, and Joe, I still have the Beijing baseball uh, that, you, that you brought to the White House in 2008. So these yeah. are the things that bind us together, you know? Yeah, I got, I got all kinds of crap and somewhere sitting behind me, actually. So yeah. once again, uh, this has been The Cusp Show. Our guest today was Kevin Sullivan, KS Communications, telling some great stories. Uh, for Tom Richardson, I'm Joe Favorito. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you down the road.